Good morning. I want to offer just a brief word of prayer before we start. God, you who have soaked your scriptures in the reality of Christ, his coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection, open your word to us and cause our hearts to burn within us, we pray. You who sent your Holy Spirit to hover over the waters at creation, now hover over and within us, we pray, that we might better hear, understand, and do your word. Amen. There is a scene in... um, the old sitcom, Everybody Loves Raymond, which is it's probably my favorite, favorite episode of that. It's the episode in which Ray uh, has to talk to his daughter because he thinks she wants to know where babies come from. <laughs> Only he finds out after talking with Allie that she doesn't want to know how babies are born. She wants to know why. Why are babies born? Why does God put us on the earth? Why... Why shouldn't we just live with God in heaven and skip the earthly existence with all its challenges? Good question. Ray's initial answer is that uh, God puts us on earth because heaven is crowded. (laughs) And God does it so that he can ease the heavenly congestion. Then he feigns a sneezing attack and runs out of the room because he can't figure out what to say. He runs downstairs to talk to his wife, Deborah, about what they're going to do next. The whole family, of course, that shows its best when everybody's in the room together. The whole family eventually gets into the discussion, and it's hilarious. In fact, it is the only episode of Everybody Loves Raymond that I actually own. I just wanted to watch it whenever I wanted to watch it. And then Ray's older brother, Robert, jumps in, and he takes things to a whole new level. As his own questions are revealed, what he refers to as life's imponderables. After wondering aloud about the nature of space and where it ends, in a mild state of panic, Robert asked, What about the beginning of time? What was there before that? Before time? Nothing? I mean, what is nothing? How could there be nothing? This doesn't bother anybody else? And that's the best Robert I got. And the, the interesting thing for me was these actually are some of the very questions I remember asking my parents as a kid. They didn't have answers either. What was before time? Nothing? What was nothing? How can there be nothing? What's important to us to know as we launch into the book of Exodus today is that the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and other cultures with whom the Hebrew people would have been very familiar all had their own takes on the origin of the universe. And those myths, those stories, those beliefs were shaping the people of God in ways that ran contrary to the way God desired them to be shaped and designed them to shape. We could say that whether the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt or in exile in Babylon or occupied by the Romans, they were being discipled by whatever culture was around them in that context they were being discipled they were being discipled in a way that today we might say that we can be discipled more by television and social media and political rhetoric and 24-hour cable news more than we are discipled by christ and his teaching and so at that time when israel was dealing with these things the leaders of the people of god took up the task of gathering ancient documents and sources and compiling them and editing them so that people 
uh, might be reminded of who God is and who they are. They began with the books of the law, traditionally referred to as the books of Moses or the law of Moses. The Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word that means law, instruction, or teaching. It refers initially, it now refers pretty much to all of Hebrew scriptures, but initially it referred to the first five books, which are called the Pentateuch, which means five tuks, or books. The first of those five books is the book of Genesis, and it begins with two accounts of creation. From the very beginning, the creation account in Genesis 1 looks a lot like the creation stories of Babylon and Egypt and other nearby civilizations. That is, there are definite similarities between Genesis and other accounts, but it is the differences that matter most. It is the differences between the accounts that matter most to us. One important similarity that they all seem to have in common was that the story of creation for all of these cultures begins with water. It begins with water. To Robert Barone's question earlier about what was there before time, nothing, that, that may be the modern way that we think of that question, that we think of existence and so forth, but that wasn't the way ancient people thought about it. For them, what was before creation was not nothing but chaos. Chaos. And chaos was, in their minds, a watery, wild, untamed abyss. This is where Genesis begins to. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the first line there serves as sort of a chapter heading, depending on how it's translated. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What follows then unpacks that heading. God took the chaos and the disorder the wild and frightening and deep dark sea, and he brought order to it. He gave it purpose. Furthermore, the way Genesis 1 tells it, God did not make all of this out of nothing. Now, there are certainly other places in Scripture that say that God did in fact make uh, all that is out of nothing, but Genesis 1 is unconcerned with that. Genesis 1 is concerned about God bringing order and purpose to the chaos of the primordial earth. And, and don't get me wrong, God most certainly definitely did create planet earth and the starry host and the hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. The latest estimate is actually two trillion. So ancient peoples, they, they, didn't know, they didn't know any of that. They didn't have any understanding of the universe that we have. So God used their story, their story, their storytelling devices, their culture to tell the story. This is how God works in the world. He doesn't usurp the culture. He speaks from within the culture, and he uses it to teach us about himself and about us. And if God speaks from within a culture, we should expect that what God says in Genesis 1 is going to sound like the culture he's speaking into. So we should not expect the cosmology of Genesis 1 to be any different than the cosmology of the ancient people for whom and to whom these accounts were written. Cosmology being the science or the study of the universe, how it came to be, and how it works. The account in Genesis 1 simply does not match up with what we now know and have known down through the ages from the likes of Johannes Kepler, Nicholas Copernicus, 
Galileo, Galilei, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. No, the cosmology of those who first read Genesis 1 was an ancient cosmology, cosmology, and we need to keep that in mind. God was not interested in correcting their cosmology. God was interested in pursuing a relationship with them. God was not interested in correcting their cosmology. God was interested in pursuing a relationship with them. One of the things that the ancient Israelites had in common with all the, all their, all the other cultures at that time in that part of the world was the belief that nothing truly existed. Again, a word they probably wouldn't have used. Nothing truly existed unless it had order and function. Unless it had purpose. So in Genesis 1, God begins with the chaos of primordial earth. And the Hebrew word for the chaos is a fun one to say. Tohu wabohu. So we're all going to say it together. Tohu wabohu. The, the V is really a W sound. Tohu wabohu. It's just fun to say. It can be translated as formless and void, as wild and waste. Eugene Peterson in the message says it was a soup of nothingness, bottomless and empty. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar from Wheaton College, has much to say about how we should read Genesis 1. But one of uh, his most helpful proposals is all about order and function. In his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, he writes that cosmic creation in the ancient world was not viewed primarily as a process by which matter was brought into being, but as a process by which functions, roles, order, jurisdiction, organization, and stability were established. Now, my guess is it's too early on a Sunday to even begin to grasp a lot of what he's saying. So he does us a favor. He gives us an example. It's a difference between a house and a home. It's a difference between a house and a home. A house is good. A house needs to be created or constructed. But when it really takes on meaning is when someone moves into it and makes it into a home. They give it order. They turn empty rooms into living rooms and dining rooms and bedrooms and the like. That's what makes the building come alive. How it is used. How it functions. A house is a good thing, but for a house to truly become a home, it will need to be ordered as such. This is what God gives to the tohu wabohu in Genesis 1. He takes what is wild and waste and chaotic, and it gives it order and purpose and function. We have to be careful not to go into reading these ancient accounts with our modern mindset, thinking that's the way we have to interpret it. It reminds me of when, uh, when we lived in the Netherlands, Americans would come over, and they would have in their minds that everything should be like it was in America. And they were loud. I'm sorry, they were. And they asked their questions loudly, so much so that Kim and I would say, oh, there's some Americans, and we would try to get away because we didn't want them to know we spoke English and we'd have to answer their questions. It was embarrassing. You can't go into another culture thinking your culture is the only way to see things. We have to take our modern understanding and put it aside and embrace it the way the ancients did so we can get at what's going on here. So rather than diving into too many of these other ancient stories with which Genesis competes, let's look at just one, likely the most important one in the background as we read Genesis 1. In the ancient Babylonian creation story known as the Enuma Elish, 
The heavens and the earth are created when one god, Marduk, takes on the goddess Tiamat, goddess of the sea. She is in the shape of a sea dragon. Aren't they attractive? Marduk kills Tiamat, slices her in half, takes one half of her body and makes the heavens and the sky, takes the other half and makes the earth, or the land. Most of the ancient stories, the ancient creation stories, portray creation as being born out of conflict between gods. So again, while there are similarities between Genesis 1 and other creation accounts in that day and age, the the differences are what we need to pay attention to. So the first radical claim, the first difference that is lifted up by Genesis 1 might be this, that God simply created all that is. It was not born out of conflict. It was not born out of ill will, but out of God's character and his character and and his creation like he was good. Furthermore, and this is just a fun fact, but I think it's intentional, the goddess Tiamat was a sea dragon or a sea monster. And what most of our contemporary translations of Genesis 1 obscure is that in Genesis 1, there is a sea monster, a dragon. On day five, Genesis 1.21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it. The word translated as great creatures of the sea is more literally a sea monster or a dragon. Whereas the Babylonian creature creation story was Tiamat, the, 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 the sea dragon was being torn in half to create the heavens of the earth. In Genesis, God created even the sea monster. There's no competition. There's no contest. No other gods. The other thing to call attention to at this point is the ancient cosmology itself that I've talked about but not really dived into. And I have shared this on other occasions, but I think it's important for us to see it again because it reminds us of how ancient people, the ancient Israelites, saw the world and understood it. So when you and I hear the word earth in the opening verses of chapter 1 of Genesis, we might immediately see this. A globe. A ball of rock spinning in space. But to the minds and most literally actually, uh, the minds of the ancient uh, people and most literally in in the verse itself, the first sentence could be translated as, in the beginning God created the skies and the land. The skies and the land. Ancient people didn't understand our solar system. Again, to say nothing of the hundreds of billions of or two trillion galaxies in the known universe. What they saw, what they understood was the land, the sea, the creatures, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. They created an image of how the world looked and worked based on what they could see. And what they saw was a three-tiered universe, heavens, earth, and under the earth. It looked Something like this. There's a ton of these on the internet. And they believe that what we now know as the sky in the far reaches of space that seems to go on forever was a firmament, a dome over a flat earth. And into that dome were placed fixed lights, like stuck in it. It was solid. These were the stars. That dome separated the waters above from the waters below. That dome had, you can see it there just a little bit, the little slots there that 
in the blue, dark blue part. The windows that are open so that rain would fall from the waters above and water the earth. And do you know what? We now know none of that is true. This is not the way creation works. This is not the way our cosmos works. But God spoke into a culture using that culture's languages and symbols, and God does the same today. God did not, you wouldn't have a Bible. It's not all that different than when parents go to pick out a children's Bible for their young children. There are certain stories, you may realize, are left out of a children's Bible or adapted so that all the violence and sex is left out. (laughs) Why? Because that is how we best communicate with children, right? That is a loving thing to do. We need to enter into their world. Try to see things the way they see. Try to talk to them in a way they understand. We, do, we need to choose words and, and images and phrases that will best communicate with them. Oh, and by the way, not traumatize them. So, for example, Noah's Ark. When we tell the story of Genesis 6 and the flood and Noah's Ark, what we see when we tell it to children are cute animals floating along peacefully. This is how we tell the story. This is how some people decorate their nurseries. You know what we don't see there? All the dead bodies floating in the water. With good reason. When our children get older and read the original version of the story, they may rightly say that what they were taught in their children's Bibles and what they learned in Sunday school was not accurate or true. It had been adapted to speak to a different culture using appropriate words and phrases and images to do so. I don't know about you, but when I was in first grade, or whenever it is you start to learn about math, math's not my thing, so I don't even remember when that was. But uh, I was taught early on, you cannot subtract larger numbers from smaller numbers. You can't do that. But when I got older, I, I learned that that was a lie. You can subtract larger numbers from smaller numbers. It's called negative numbers. (laughs) But I wasn't ready for that yet. I hadn't developed enough to understand that yet. My mind couldn't conceive of that yet. Likewise, when the story of creation was told and then written down and widely distributed, distributed, it came to us from within a context of ancient cosmology, and God did not say, no, 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 this is not the way it works, give me the pen, I'll write it. You have no idea the trouble Bill Nye, the science guy, is going to give me later. (laughs) No, God works in and through whatever we have so that we might better understand what he is saying to us. In a sense, he surrenders himself to a culture, even potential misunderstanding in order to communicate with us, to connect with us, and to lead us further along the path. So, day two, Genesis 1, 6. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the, the, under the, vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. You get the idea. Vault, vault, vault. Day four, we are told lights are placed in the vault, as I mentioned earlier. That's verses 14 and 15 later. We are told uh, the ancient cosmology saw uh, the sky as a dome with stars plastered into it so that is the way 
Genesis tells the story to. And if you know your history of things like this, you know that as we move further and further away from this time period, other people suggested other ideas, some of the names I mentioned earlier, and they weren't treated very well because they kept trying to move things forward in science. But how does all of this lead us to Jesus? Last week I talked about we're going to look at these stories and ask how they lead us to Jesus. When God wanted to communicate his story, this creation story to ancient people, he did so in their language using their symbols and their understanding of the way the world worked, even though, scientifically speaking, it was incorrect. Why did God do so? Because it is the nature of God to work with us where we are, as we are. Why? Because God transforms a thing from within the thing. God transforms the thing from within the thing, not as a top-down operation. Because this is the nature of love. This is the nature of love. This is what love does. It is the way God transforms us, isn't it? God doesn't say, you need to get your act together and then Christ can come into your life. No, we invite Christ into our life and from within us, Christ then transforms us. God transforms us from within us. In John 1.14, we are told that God, who is referred to there as the Word, comes to us as one of us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Fancy theological word for that. For, entering our, for God entering our world as one of us is incarnation, the enfleshment of God as one of us. God in Christ Jesus incarnates himself among us as one of us. God comes to us as a first century Jewish man who will speak to us in first century Jewish ways to a primarily first century Jewish audience. Why? Because that's what love does. It becomes a part of the thing it wants to transform and eventually God incarnate will even surrender to death, even death on a cross, because that is also what love does. In the same way, God incarnates the story of creation into an ancient cosmology so that ancient people can understand and be transformed. They'll figure out how the universe works later. There's another connection I want us to see, another way these first words in Scripture lead to Jesus. Again, looking at Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Second verse there. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. From ancient times, right up until the present day, followers of Jesus have made a connection here. Where else in the pages of Scripture do we encounter Spirit and water, or the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? There are actually a few places. But I'm thinking of Mark chapter 1. Jesus makes his appearance while his cousin, John the Baptist, is baptizing people in the Jordan River. There he is baptized by John. And then we read Mark 1, 10 through 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. As Jesus is coming up out of the waters, the Spirit is present like a dove. And all the word is not there. It is not a stretch to see the Spirit as hovering over Jesus in the baptismal waters. 
The language used of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 is that of a mother hen hovering over, brooding over her nest. God is a mother hen nourishing her young. The same word is used in a song that God taught Moses and told him then to teach the people of Israel later. The song celebrates God's goodness toward Israel. So speaking of Israel as God's son, the song proclaims, In a desert land he, God, found him, Israel. In a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. That word hover is the same word used of the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1 as the Spirit hovers over the surface of the waters, the deep waters. Jesus' Jesus' baptism is a picture of new creation. That's creation. This is new creation. A creation reboot. And we're going to discover, as we enter into Genesis 1 through 11, more than one occasion uh, where God sought to reboot creation. When Jesus comes on the scene, new creation bursts into existence. What God has done in the first chapter of our Bibles is to create order and purpose and beauty out of chaos and darkness What God has done for us in Christ Jesus is to open a way for us to experience this new creation too. Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist and author of several books, including The Soul of Shame and The Soul of Desire, says this about what God does in Genesis 1 and what God sees and does in us too. God looks at chaos and all he sees is beauty waiting to emerge. God not only looks at chaos, he speaks to it. He speaks to it and causes that beauty to emerge. Life is sometimes, even very often these days, chaotic. It is wild and waste. It is formless and void. It is a soup of nothingness, bottomless and empty for some of us, many of us. Maybe that describes life for some of us this morning. Maybe we need a word from God spoken over us to call us to life and beauty and joy. Christ is the word of new creation, whose life, whose teaching, whose death, and whose resurrection cause beauty to emerge from us. Just as God's spoken word over those dark waters in Genesis 1 caused beauty to emerge. So God in Christ speaks to us and causes beauty to emerge in us, your life and mine. Wherever we are on that journey, God calls us deeper and further, and God promises us new life and new creation. Would you join me with, uh, for a moment of uh, silence? And uh, I'll close us in prayer. God, you are good to us. You brought us and all that is into being. 
you set us up that we might have a relationship with you and know you and worship you and walk with you, and yet we blew it. From the very early pages of our holy scriptures, we blew it. But you have not given up on us. You spoke new creation in the word that was Jesus. And so I pray for each of us here this morning For those who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would speak a word over them, that they would hunger for that word, that they would know they can come to that word. I pray for those of us who know you, that we too would see the new creation that you have birthed and want to bring more and more to fullness in us and through us. I pray that in and through us, Lord God, you would be recreating things every day. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed continue to hover over us with your spirit, hover within us with your spirit, that we would know life and be life to others. In Jesus' name, amen.